Good evening. We're doing a makeup class for Parshat Shofetim. Uh, we on Sunday we did a long class where we discussed the broad um, like uh, systems of governance of, of the for the Israelites as they're going to go into Israel, and we analyzed the idea of the two witnesses. Why we have two witnesses. And then, of course, the system of the courts. The first of the systems of governance is the court system. We spoke about the judges, how the judges must be just and good. And then we discussed the most basic principles, which is, of course, that there must be two witnesses in order to convict someone of of any crime. And then finally, we spoke about the hierarchy of courts, which ends up with the Supreme Court in Yerushalayim, or in the place that will be chosen. And that will be the court that will decide on all matters that are unknown to the people, whether they be civil matters or according to the Midrashim, if they are even ritual matters. So any matter that is unknown will be decided by that court. Of course, we don't have that court today, which is why the halakhic system is a bit compl- more complicated than it could be. But that's for another time. So the next part of, of, the, of uh, Parashat Shofetim uh, is the next topic of governance, which is going to be the king. Okay, so that's what Sheni begins with. When you come into the land that Hashem will give you, and you will possess it, and you will dwell there, and you will say, I will put myself a king like all of the nations that are around me. You shall put a king upon you that Hashem will choose. You shall put a king from amongst your brethren. You cannot put for yourself a king that is not your brother. And now we're going to have certain laws, certain restrictions that are on the king. He should not have any horses. He should not have many horses. So that he will not return the people to Egypt in order to have many horses. For God has already told you not to return to Egypt. And if you end up going to Egypt to import horses... That will be a pretty blatant, uh, a disrespectful way of treating that command. He shall not have many wives. So that his heart shall not be swayed. And he shall not have gold and silver. He shall not have very, many, very much of that. Okay, so those are all the restrictions. There are three restrictions. He should not have too many horses. He should not have too much money or wives. The wives, we know that they cause the heart of the man to stray. Like we saw with Shalom HaMelech. In the book of Melachim, when his many wives do cause his, wife, his heart to stray and uses the same language that's used here. Now, what does it mean he should not have many horses? Does it mean the army has to be small? I think it's not referring to that. I think it's referring to his like, entourage. You know, the king's parade doesn't have to be so big. You know, uh, obviously, if they need chariots for warfare, then you, do, you, you bring in whatever you need because it's a principle in Tanakh that. You go to war with as much military might as you need in order to win. You don't, you don't skimp out on military might. But I think all of the topic here is it's talking about the king's personal uh, possessions. He shall not have too much money, shall not have too many wives, shall not have too many horses that belong to him. And those are the restrictions. But when he sits on the seat of his kingship, then... When he sits on his throne, he will write a copy of the law in a book. That is before the Kohanim and the Leviim. So it seems like the Peshat is, he shall take a, 
uh, either he has to do it under the purview of the Kohanim and Levim, meaning the Kohanim and Levim must watch him to make sure he writes it properly, or it's saying he should write it on a scroll, and he's copying it from the book that is in front of the Kohanim and the Levim, that the Kohanim and Levim are preserving, as if they, ha- they preserve this Torah, and he has to copy from that Torah. And will be with him. The Torah that he writes will be with him. And he'll read it all the days of his life. So that he shall learn to fear Hashem is God. To fear Hashem is God. And to keep all of the words of the Torah and these laws. To do them. So that his heart shall not become haughty over his brethren. And so that he will not deviate from the mitzvah right or left. So that his days of his kingship will, be, will last for a long time, he and his sons amongst Israel. Okay, so the picture we have of the king is a very interesting one. Uh, notice that they do not, it does not state that the king has any rights. The king has duties and the king has restrictions, but he has no rights. The king has the same amount of rights as the regular person. That's not the same as other societies at the time where the, the kings had very many rights. They had more rights than the average person. They're allowed to do things that the average person is not allowed to do. But in Israel, the king only has duties like helping B'nai Israel, <coughs> and he has restrictions like he cannot become too rich or cannot become, have too many wives or too many horses. One of the things we were talking about with uh, my fiance was that... Um, the idea of him not having too much wealth is also has like a deterring effect. It stops bad actors from pursuing king, kingly power because a lot of times people go into politics to become wealthy. And the person who goes into politics to become wealthy is probably a person with bad motivations. <coughs> it means that if they can use their power to, to get, get a bribe, then they'll use it, right? But by, when the Torah says that the king cannot become too rich and he cannot have too many horses, that means that if a person wants to become wealthy, he won't go into politics because there isn't any money in there for him. So it's a, it's an, a brilliant strategy to, to winnow out the kinds of people who you do not want to be in a kingly position. Um, what's also fascinating is that the Torah, in its brilliance, recognizes the corrupting nature of power so that his heart will not become too haughty over his brethren. The Torah knows that absolute power corrupts absolutely. <coughs> the Torah is aware of that. So instead of giving the king respect, the Torah gives him restrictions. And that's what the Torah is for. The king has to write his own Torah, because more than anybody else, he has the potential to forget the Torah. The king, because of his power and his influence, he may think that he's above the law. But more than anybody else, he's beneath the law because God is the only king. So the picture of the king in Israel is a brilliant picture. It's not a picture of someone who has rights. It's a person who has duties. He's a civil servant. You know, like these politicians, somehow they, they, sometimes they say, it's not in good faith, but they say, I've been in civil service for 20 years. Like, no, you haven't been in civil service. You've been making yourself rich. <coughs> You've not been a civil servant. It's a very nice way of saying you went into politics and you were fully corrupt the whole time. So the Torah actually does want the king to be an actual civil servant. That's what the Torah is is setting up. Thank you so much.
Okay, the next part of the leadership of, of Medinat Israel is going to be the Leviim. And the most important thing about the Leviim is that, the, or the Kohanim, is that in other societies, the priestly class would have become very buddy-buddy with the king, and they would all become wealthy also. So what does the Torah do? It says they're not allowed, not allowed to have their own land, they're not allowed to have their own possession. Case in point, the biggest landlord in the world is the Catholic Church. They own more, more land than any other landlord. So in the Torah, the priestly class is not allowed to amass wealth. They cannot amass property. Because just like the king is a civil servant in the true sense of the word, the Leviim also have to be civil servants in the true sense of the word. So we'll read the Psukim quickly on those. There should not be to the Kohanim who are Leviim. All the whole tribe of Levi, they should not have a portion with Israel. They will eat the fire offerings of God and his portion. He will not have a portion amongst his brethren. God is his portion as he commanded him. So Levi does not have a portion, they have God as their portion. Their portion is to serve in the Beit HaMikdash. Now the, uh, it's going to go, the Torah is going to go through the portions of the, of the meat that people sacrifice that are supposed to be gifts for the Kohanim. We won't go into that in detail. Uh, but it, said, it talks about the Terumot that must be given, Rashite Ganecha, like the, the, the first of their fruit, and the, the first of your oils, and the first of your grain, the first of your shearings. For, and why are you paying them this this tax to the Kohanim because they were chosen from all the tribes to serve God, him and his son, meaning Aaron's family and his kids, for all of time. It's a very confusing passage, but what, what it's saying here is <clears throat> when the Levi comes and he serves in the Beit HaMikdash, Despite the fact that his family or his father may have already received gifts and he has enough, they still partake in the gifts that are part of the Beit HaMikdash service. So just because the Levi has enough, they still can partake in, in the, the meats that they are serving in the Beit HaMikdash, that they are offering as offerings of the Beit HaMikdash. They take it besides for what he already has from his father's portion. Um, but that's really the whole topic with the Levi. So, so far, we've discussed the judges the king and the Levi. And what's the main theme? The judges obviously must be clean and they cannot be going for, for bribes. The king, we, we filter out the possibility of bringing in um, uh, bad actors by, by limiting how wealthy they can actually become. It's as if, imagine we made a rule that no politician is allowed to make any money other than their salary. Nobody would want to go into politics. So we were discussing, me and my fiance. Um, it's a fascinating idea. Imagine they made a rule that for the 10 years after a person leaves the government, they're not allowed to collect any payment for any service, like a speech, or they're not allowed to sell any books, or they're not allowed to take any consulting positions. They go, they have 10 years, that they're in, they're, for the 10 years that they're out of service, they collect a $100,000 pension, and in that time, they're not allowed to have any other income. Anybody who wants to go into the, into the business of politics for money, won't go into it, they'll go into something else, they'll go start a real business. So then, who's gonna go into politics? People who care about the people. I mean, in theory, you know. It's never that simple, but. Okay, and then we have the Levim, and the main goal with the Levim is to do two things. One, stop the Levim from becoming too wealthy. 
because being in a position of ritual power, they're in a position of abuse. You know who abused their power and took uh, excess money from the people? The sons of Eli. And even the sons of Shemuel, both of them. They, were both, they both got corrupted. Okay, so we know that people that are in a position of leadership, especially Kohanim, can potentially be, be corrupted. So the Torah said they're not allowed to have any portion of land, so they cannot become too wealthy. All of their funds must come from, from, from the people because they are serving the people and they're serving God. Okay? And then the, the next um, uh, piece is an introduction to another form of leadership in Israel, and that is the Navi. And the piece starts by telling us that amongst the Goyim, they have a lot of potential for giving in to, to soothsayers and people that are, you know, like frauds and fraudsters and people that are involved in Abu Dazara forms of prophecy. Okay? So it opens up by saying, When you come into the land that Hashem gives you, do not learn to do like the abominations of those nations. Like, what do they do? They pass their kids through fire. They do all these magical tricks. These are all different types of magic they used to do. People that, he's a, uh, people that a charmer. Or people that ask of the dead. They ask questions of the dead. Or people that seek out the, the word of the dead. For these are all abominations of God To God And it's because of these abominations That God is eradicating And kicking these people out of the land In the first place So don't do any of these magical things Rather Be holy with Hashem Meaning not, not holy as in H-O-L-Y I meant W-H-O Meaning whole, wholesomely Or wholeheartedly with Hashem your God be fully devoted to God and do not get involved in any of those things. Now you may say, if all of these things are so prevalent and if all the goyim had these things that they're doing, like they would search after these, uh, they speak to the dead, there must be a place in the human heart that wants it. I mean, there's, we all have anxieties and things like that. We want to hear about what's going to be. We want to know if we're going to be okay. So it's not so easy. Is there a means for B'nai Israel to channel that need for, for divine revelation to channel it in a way that's kosher. Okay, we're not allowed to do what the goyim do. We can't go to the priest and ask him to tell us our future by speaking to the bone or whatever, or speaking to the, to the dead person. But is there anything we are allowed to do? So now the, the Aliyah turns and talks about what our option is for, for, for having such revelation when we need it. This is Aliyah Chamishi. These goyim, they go to the charmers and the people that are doing Abu and people that are, that are soothsayers for their, uh, to, to, and they listen to them. But you, Hashem has not given you that as your lot. Rather, A prophet from amongst your brethren, from, your, from, from amongst you, like me, Moshe says, God will give you, and you should listen to him. You should listen to the Navi, and not to the people that are engaged in this other magic. And why, why will I ensure, or why will Hashem ensure that you have an Avi? Because you need it. Because when we were at Har Sinai and you wanted to hear God's voice, you couldn't hear it directly. And it's okay, God allows you to hear His voice. And it's not just once that He will want, to hear, he will want you to hear His voice. It'll be many times in the future that God will want you to hear His voice. So we're going to have Nevi'im that are going to fill that need. It started at Har Sinai when you realized that you couldn't hear God's voice and live. And that's why I came along and taught you the Torah. 
but it will continue in the future as well. That's what Moshe is telling Ben Israel now. Like you asked Hashem your God in, in Mount Sinai, in the day of the gathering, when you said, I can no longer hear the voice of Hashem my God. I cannot see this fire because I will die. And Hashem said to me, they are right. They cannot hear my voice. So, so I will bring a Navi like you, Moshe, and I will have the Navi learn or teach B'nai Israel everything that I have to command them. The man who does not listen to the Navi, that'll be, Hashem says, I will punish him. Meaning, it, just like people have to listen to you, Moshe, for the future, people will listen to the other Navim that will be necessary. But if a Navi tries to lie, and he says something that, I'm, that I did not command him to say, or if he says in the name of another God, that Navi has to be put to death. And if you say, wait, but how do I know if the Navi is truthful? If the Navi says something and it does not come true, then you know the Navi is lying. But if he says something and it's true, then you can assume that he, you, you don't have to assume he's lying. Okay? Uh, the only way you know if the Navi is false is if he says something and it doesn't come true. Now, if he says something and it comes true, he could have gotten lucky. Okay? So if you do your due diligence and the man is a tzaddik and it makes sense that he would be a Navi, then if he tells you something, you have to listen to it. Now, once something he says is false, then you know that he is, he's a liar and you have to put that guy to death. Is this a foolproof system? No. There are holes in the system. There could be a Navi who's false. But as long as us, B'nai Israel, we do our job and we vet it out to the best of our ability, we did our job. Now, the Chachamim say in the, in the Gemara that if the Navi and the Halakha, it's brought down Rambam, that if the Navi says that something bad is going to happen and it doesn't happen, that's not proof that the Navi is false. Because when bad decrees are made for B'nai Israel, there's always an option for Teshuvah. So that's not a, that doesn't mean that the Navi is false. Only when the Navi says something good is going to happen and, and it doesn't happen, good decrees always come, come true. So when the Navi says something good and it doesn't happen, then you know that the Navi is false and then you have to put him to death. Um, just understanding why we're so concerned with false prophets, very simply because being a false prophet is a great way to get power. So the same way we're concerned with the king and the same way we're concerned with the Levi and the same way we're concerned with the judges all corrupting their power, we're also concerned with the Navi corrupting his power. That's why if the Navi steps out of bounds even a little bit, we put him to death. So it's not really the best job anybody wants. Nobody, we, we're trying to disincentivize somebody from being a Navi. The punishment for being wrong, if you're Navi, is very bad. So hopefully nobody will become a Navi just to abuse the power. Okay, I will continue with Hashem tomorrow. Baruch Amen, Amen.